Gresham College Presents Divine Knowledge and Human Freedom by Gwen Griffith Dixon, Gresham Professor of Divinity. Oh, welcome and good evening. It's the last of this year's uh, sessions on the concept or the, the nature of God that we've been looking at throughout the year. And thank you, those of you who have been patiently coming along and, and attending. I do recognize faces and I do remember you from, from one night to the next. It's very nice to see um, people that I increasingly feel are, are friends. So thank you very much for your indulgence over this year. Tonight's topic is on divine knowledge and human freedom. How you answer a question depends, of course, on the question you actually ask. And the way that you pose the question is influenced by the way that you perhaps unconsciously structure the situation in your mind. And then the way that you go on to answer the question starts to affect other issues which you may not have thought were even implicated in the first instance. And all these things are particularly true, I think, when we reflect on the problems of life from the perspective of a religious faith. So it's no good asking a Jain, one of the Indian religions, why an omnipotent God permits evil, because they don't believe in a God. And it's no good asking a Jew uh, whether or not God is subject to karma, which is a frequent question or debate in the Indian religions. Both the traditions are intentionally concerned with problems of evil and suffering, but the specific questions that are posed for them or the dilemmas that are posed for them on that topic must differ because the beliefs that structure their questions differ. The major world religions that we have today are very complex structures, not at all homogeneous, because they've evolved over a very long period of time. And also in that time, they've bumped into each other. And they've bumped into different philosophical cultures. And they've absorbed each other's ideas and problems. They haven't always adopted each other's answers, but they often have adopted each other's questions, which is almost more interesting. We see a particularly good example of this historically in the interaction of Christianity and Judaism and Islam with ancient Greek philosophy. The religious framework or the worldview of these three monotheisms with their emphasis on scriptural revelation is quite different from the metaphysics of Plato and Aristotle. But paradoxically, that meant that ancient Greek philosophy didn't necessarily conflict with their religious tenets, and so they could adopt it as their philosophical framework for their faith. But the collision of these different styles of reflection threw up all sorts of new questions for the evolving faiths. From an interfaith point of view, one thing that's interesting here is to see how the different faiths responded to the same impetus or stimulus of Greek philosophy. One reason for that is because their responses weren't characterized by the bitter theological differences, like the nature of Jesus or whether or not there's a trinity, or whether you, you go for an unqualified monotheism as in Islam and Judaism. Often it was their uh, shared picture of God that came to the fore when they encountered Greek philosophy. So their responses are often more harmonious than their theological differences might indicate. And one of the best, most elegant examples of this is tonight's topic, the question of God's knowledge. 
All three of these religions had a powerful belief from their scriptures in the idea that God is all-knowing. And thus far, that doesn't seem too problematic. It seems more problematic to say he doesn't know all. If you believe in a single transcendent God, it seems obvious that he knows everything. Then they came across Aristotle. In chapter 9 of one of Aristotle's works called On Interpretation, Aristotle raises the problem about statements about the future. Can you say that a future statement is either true or false? I'm going to have pasta for lunch tomorrow. Is that true or false now? Or Aristotle's example, which is sadly relevant, is it true or false to say now that a battle will start tomorrow? As Aristotle sees it, what he calls the principle of bivalence, that a proposition is either true or not true, can't be neither or both, either true or not true, the problem arises if you claim that that applies to statements about the future. It's either true or not true now that I will have pasta for lunch tomorrow. The problem is this. If a proposition is true, then necessarily that means reality conforms to what you've said. If a future proposition is true, then it means that it must turn out tomorrow the way that I've said today. This now means I'm obliged to have pasta tomorrow, whether I like it or not, if it's true now that I will have pasta for lunch tomorrow. I can't at last minute change my mind and go for the salad or something like that. So if statements about the future are true today, then does that mean there's no choice if you're thinking about human beings? I can't change my mind. Even if I say now, I'm sure I'll have pasta tomorrow, I cannot change my mind. Or if you're talking about nature and not human choices, then is there no chance or indeterminacy in the universe? Is everything fixed? But the really difficult problem is, if there is no choice, if there is no free will, then are we still morally responsible for what we do, if we couldn't choose otherwise? So if it's true now that war will be waged on Iraq in mid-March 2003, if that's true now, then there's nothing that can be done to avert it. Not even Saddam Hussein can avert it, and we're told he's the only one now who can, who can act for peace. There's nothing Tony Blair can do. It. There isn't even nothing Donald Rumsfeld can do um, to prevent war being waged if we say now that it is tr- the statement is true or false. So if it turns out badly and there are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of deaths and other disasters, no one's to blame because no one had any choice because no one could do any differently because it's, that statement is true or false now. Now, does that seem right to you intuitively? No one is to blame. Or no one can take credit. The dilemma is that it seems that either nothing can truly be said about the future, or else the future is wholly fixed and determined, and there's no freedom, there's no choice, and there's no chance. And for many people, both of those just intuitively seem wrong. We want to believe in some elements of freedom, some elements of chance. But we also think it makes sense to say that it is true that I am flying away tomorrow morning. 
Aristotle's way out was to decide that statements about the future, which are not necessary in any philosophical sense, so excluding anything you can predict by natural laws, statements about the future are neither true nor false now. They don't have a truth value now. They will become true or false, but they are not true now. Nice commonsensical answer, good old Aristotle. It's fine if you're thinking about human knowledge, because we're not expected to know the future. But what all three of these scriptural monotheisms, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, what all three of them spotted when they read Aristotle was, what about God's knowledge? Because we do intuitively believe, we Christians, Jews, Muslims, we do believe that God knows the future. And if you're just thinking about how God knows the future and we don't, that's not a problem for a believer because God is transcendent and so much more powerful, better than we are. That's not the problem. The problem is this logical problem about determining the future. If there is a God who is all-knowing and ought to know the future or else is ignorant of what lies ahead, which doesn't seem satisfying. So if God knows whether or not a battle will happen tomorrow, if he knows, say, that the battle will happen by the middle of March, then none of us can do anything to prevent it. It is true, and we are no longer morally responsible or whoever are making the decisions. So if God knows my future free actions, and they are therefore necessary, how can either reward or punishment be just? If God doesn't know the future, how can he exercise providence and care and look after us? Or how can God arrange things as he wills for our benefit or for justice if he doesn't know what's going to happen? So if, on the other hand, God is omniscient, then do human beings have free will? This is an odd sort of coupling of ideas that you wouldn't instinctively have thought went together, God's knowledge and our freedom. But once you collide with Aristotle, it's been made into a problem. Because there's a danger that if you believe that God is omniscient, then all our actions are predetermined. And no matter what your religion or denomination says, you've got to believe in some kind of predestination. These problems arose in, in Judaism First, actually, in exegetical discussions, in discussions of the scriptures, and it came up for them with the story of the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, as they call it, the story where Abraham is commanded by God to take Isaac, his son, and offer him as a sacrifice, and Abraham obeys, um, up to the ultimate point where, of course, then he's let off the hook. And there is a phrase there that exercised the Jewish commentators, because it said that God did this as a test of Abraham. And they applied a sort of Aristotle-like problem. If it's a test of Abraham, does that mean that God doesn't know what Abraham's going to do? Which is not very good for God's omniscience. So there was a lot of creativity exercised by Jewish commentators on what test means and um, how you can interpret it differently. And that's the context that first triggered the Jewish discussions on, on this issue about God's knowing in advance what we may or may not do and whether we remain free. The question had a different history in Islam, where you had a series of, of commentators writing on Aristotle, writing com uh, commentaries on Aristotle's 
uh, day inter on interpretation. And they really could have got, got away without this problem to some extent, because although the Quran implies that God is omniscient, saying that God knows all things and all that we do, nevertheless, when God's knowledge of the future is discussed, the Quran is only specific about um, five things, I think, and none of them are our future action. So the Quran never actually says God knows our future free action. So for a sort of liberal streak in early Islam, the way was open for them to say that God doesn't know. We do have free will. It is a genuinely open question. They're libertarians, if you want to call them that. God only foreknows exactly what's specified in the Quran. So he doesn't know in advance what we will freely choose. But that wasn't a mainstream view. Al-Ghazali, uh, in his description of God's knowledge, says, God knows all objects of knowledge and comprehends whatever takes place from the boundaries of the earth to the highest point of heaven. He is knowing in a way which makes it certain that the weight of a particle of dust on earth does not escape his knowledge. He knows the scurrying of a black ant upon a hard rock in a dark night. He perceives the motion of a mote in air. He knows what is secret and hidden. He observes the innermost thoughts that occur, the ideas that stir, and secrets that are concealed in the heart. So if you take that very broad view of God's knowledge, there's no way out of confronting the issue. In Christian thought, the problem was raised quite early on by Augustine and then later by Christian medieval philosophers, some aware of the discussions going on in Judaism and Islam, and some just getting it from the Christian heritage. Aquinas put it in his typical pithy fashion, whatever is known by God must be, for whatever is known by us must be, and God's knowledge is more certain than ours. But nothing which is future and contingent must be, Therefore, nothing which is future and contingent is known by God. Within Christianity, this particular debate really got hot and heated and uh, bitter in the Reformation, in the disputes between Catholics and Protestants. And their point of strife shows what the bearing of this issue really is, salvation, in other words. If my actions are totally predetermined, so it's already true now whether I'm going to do something that merits damnation in 10 years. And that's already decided. And when the time comes, there's nothing I can do to, to prevent it or stop it. How am I responsible for it? And how can damnation or salvation ever be just? Am I just predestined for this? So Erasmus and Luther, for example, in their clashes clashed particularly on this issue. Um, Erasmus's claim was that Luther's position basically denies free will. Because Luther was willing to embrace the idea that all events in the world are actually necessary. They're not open to chance or, or change. Even our actions are in some sense necessitated, he says. Erasmus's response was to depict the scenario as God willing us to sin and then punishing us for it. And that, in fact, is, was one of the Muslim objections to their um, fellows, the philosophers of Basra, as we talked about um, last time. 
So this question of what human freedom consists in was a heightened uh, aspect of this particular debate of what otherwise seems like just a logical quibble. You can see here that it's not just a logical puzzle. It's got very important moral and religious implications uh, at stake for all three of these faiths. Christianity, on the question of predestination and salvation, as we've seen. In Judaism, they often addressed it in the context of the value of the Torah. What sense is there in enjoining someone to follow and uphold the law if they cannot do otherwise than what they in fact do? There's just no point urging people to follow the law. Does that mean then that the Torah given by God is nonsense? That's obviously an unacceptable conclusion. Al-Farabi, one of the earliest Islamic philosophers, raised these issues about justice from the Islamic perspective. It then becomes necessary, he writes, and this is his commentary on Aristotle, it becomes necessary in all religions that in his doing of anything, man has basically no choice. Thus, what comes to him by way of punishment in this world and the next is not due to something of his doing that has come about through his will and choice. Thus, God, who rewards and punishes, would not then be just in his action. But these things are all repugnant and reprehensible according to all the religions and very, very harmful for people to believe. This debate isn't just historical, although I'm mainly talking about medieval and and Reformation people. It's been revised in modern times in the English-speaking world, English, sort of Anglo-American philosophy of religion, in a similar sort of pattern. I think the challenges, this is just my reading of it, but I think challenges have come from atheists as to the coherence of the idea of God, the coherence of believing in a religion at all. And then philosophers of religion, either in articulating these problems or defending against them, unknowingly replicate these medieval arguments and these medieval structures, usually without being aware of them. Certainly, if they're from a Christian tradition, most of them have not been aware of the Islamic and Jewish contributions. But particularly if they're from a Reformed tradition, they're often not aware of all these medieval Catholic scholastics who... um, So you get a a Calvinist putting forward the ideas of William of Ockham and not realizing it until some annoying Catholic scholar says, oh, so you're basically an Ockhamist. (laughs) Didn't know what he'd ever done to justify that accusation. But then if he disagreed with it, he was still a Catholic medieval, but just didn't wish to be. What's interesting is not just that this problem hasn't gone away, nor that it arises in all three of these monotheisms that I've been describing, But further, that the different solutions and problems don't fall into three camps. You don't have the Muslim response and the Jewish response and the Christian response. In fact, you don't even have the Catholic and the Protestant uh, response, though that's slightly truer. The responses cut across faiths, as I've said on various occasions this year. So Jews and Muslims and Christians who all take one solution, Jews, Christians and Muslims who all disagree with that but agree with each other. And the positions are also not divided by epoch, so the medievals all think that, but we know better. As I've just indicated, the debates between, say, Aquinas and Duns Scotus are being replicated in Calvin College in America. Some have tried to resolve the dilemma by giving up one side of the problem, human freedom, 
or the other side of the problem, God's omniscience. And any time you're being stretched in two directions, it's obviously the easiest thing to do is to give up one side or the other. So you can give up the idea that God knows in advance what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow. And you can usually, if you're clever enough, find a way of doing this without actually saying that God is ignorant and be more diplomatic about it than that. Um, as we just saw, Aristotle's solution was to deny that these propositions have a truth value now. So in other words, a statement about 100 years from now is neither true nor false now. So what you can then do is say, well, if it's neither true nor false now, it doesn't count as knowledge. So there's only true knowledge. There's no such thing as false knowledge. So if it's not true, it's not knowledge yet. And if it's not knowledge, God is not unknowing if he hasn't got it yet. So the denial that future propositions are true or false can provide uh, a way out for some philosophers. We're saying God doesn't know what we're going to do in advance, but that's all right because it's not knowledge. Um, versions of that you find in Richard Swinburne and Peter Geach, for example. So just as we saw last time with omnipotence, saying that, well, God's power or God's omnipotence just means God can do anything that's doable by God, then omniscience just means God only knows what's knowable by God. It doesn't mean that God can know everything. So Richard Swinburne's formula is that God knows, omniscience is the knowledge of everything true, which is logically possible to know. So future statements aren't logically possible to know. No slight on God that he hasn't quite mastered them yet. The more conventional route, though, is to say, um, well, we're not really free. And there is some form, not totally free, there's some form of predestination that applies. So my future is not totally open to all possibilities. It's already determined in certain ways. But again, you can sort of soften the blow and one way of doing it is the way that Luther took. He distinguished two different versions of what you think freedom is, the liberty of indifference or the liberty of spontaneity. And the liberty of indifference means you've got lots and lots and lots of choices. So if you want coffee, you've gone to Starbucks and there's 20 different kinds of coffee. Now you're really free to have whatever kind of coffee you like. But the Liberty of spontaneity is maybe only having one choice, but that's the one you want. So you look at a menu, and you choose the pudding you're going to have out of a choice of three. And when the waitress comes up, she tells you the other two are off. You can only have the one, but that's the one you wanted. You've really chosen it. Now, for Luther, this is a solution because there's not really lots of options. You can only go in one way, but you really wanted to go that way. So you can be punished for it. <laughs> or you can be praised for it if it happens to be a good thing to do. So you really wanted it. You're free if you chose it, even if you had no options. It's, it's a sort of not the American model of, of choice and, and freedom. These solutions have again actually been rediscovered and rehearsed in, in modern times. Strangely enough, often in ethics, where they're even less aware of medieval debates, I think. Now, there's another really elegant maneuver, which can be a little bit difficult if you try to picture it, so don't try to picture it. It was proposed in the Christian tradition by Boethius, but it was also asserted by Avicenna or even Sina in Islam and by Crescas in the Jewish tradition. So again, all three of these traditions have had their version of it. 
That is to say that God is timeless. That is to say God exists right outside the scheme of time whatsoever. So God doesn't have a future and a past. God exists in one eternal now, so to speak. So God's not subject to the passage of time and the progression of time in the way we are. That means that everything is eternally simultaneous for God. And so God knows everything the way we know something in the present. It's just there. It's present to you. You observe it. He doesn't have to anticipate or deduce or guess what might happen. So if there's no future to knowledge, there's no foreknowledge for God. Just timeless knowledge of everything at once. This is how Boethius described it. His knowledge transcends all temporal change and abides in the immediacy of his presence. It embraces all the infinite recesses of past and future and views them in the immediacy of his knowing as though they are happening in the present. If you wish to consider, then, the foreknowledge or prevision by which he discovers all things, it will be more correct to think of it not as a kind of foreknowledge, but as the knowledge of a never-ending presence. Aquinas has a nice sort of metaphor. <clears throat> he writes, God is altogether outside the sequence of time, being, as it were, a great citadel of eternity, which is altogether at once and beneath which lies the whole course of time in a single vision. Hence, in one vision, he sees everything that will happen in the course of time, not as though future to him and his vision, but he sees eternally each thing that happens at whatever time. He has another metaphor, where metaphor of a circle. If you imagine us going around the circumference of the circle, we can only kind of plod like that. God is at the center of the circle, and every point on the circumference is equally present to the center. So we see each thing that happens, but God is simultaneously connected, if you like, to every point on the circle. So God just witnesses what happens. He doesn't, as it were, make things happen by knowing about them in advance. So that's another possible solution to the dilemma. There have been other problems, though, raised about God's omniscience, like what form does God's knowledge take? Does he actually think in propositions that are either true or false? Or how does God come to know things if he hasn't got senses and so on? Does he know by observing things? That would seem to mean that God needs information from us. Does he know what happens in the world by willing it? That would seem to imply that that controls us and impairs our freedom. Or, in fact, the question that someone here raised last time or the time before, um, can a timeless, changeless God know what happens in the future? Or can he know everything? Sorry, can he know everything? Can God know, right now, Gwen is giving a lecture? He can't know the right now bit. He can't know today is, what is today? Wednesday, sorry. I don't even know what today is. Um, today is Wednesday. Is it something that God cannot know? If he is timeless, there's no today. Or if there is, they're all Wednesday, Thursdays, all happening simultaneously. Now, if these problems have never, ever bothered you, uh, 
you have my sympathy, but you, also, you may have sympathy with Moses Maimonides, one of the most sort of abstruse philosophers, but a nice sort of cynical cutting edge to him. What I say myself, he writes, is that all these difficulties have as their cause the fact that they establish a comparison between our knowledge and his. May he be exalted. For every sect considers the things that are impossible for our knowledge and consequently thinks that this also holds necessarily with regard to his knowledge, or else that the thing is obscure for it. The philosophers ought to be blamed more strongly than anyone else with regard to this question. Maimonides here is objecting basically to anthropomorphism, to thinking of God as too much like a supervision of, of a human being. Now, if you believe that God is not just a particularly superhuman person, there is going to have to be a radical difference somewhere between our knowledge and God's knowledge. And just tactically, why not locate these problems right there? at the source of the difficulty. Where that difference is, is that for us it creates a problem, for God it doesn't create a problem. What is a problem for us temporal beings in knowing the future is not a problem for God. There's another sort of Maimonides-inspired solution, another backhanded solution to this kind of problem. Because although Maimonides was a very logical thinker, he had a very laid-back attitude towards contradiction. And in fact, he encouraged contradiction in certain circumstances. He gives a nice list of seven reasons why uh, contradictions might be necessary or even important. So following him, if you're in a sort of rebellious mood, you could provocatively speculate that philosophers of religion are mistaken in their desperation to show how their concept of God involves no contradictions. How is it possible for God to be God? It's got to be made, made logical, according to human notions, of the absence of contradiction. But maybe it's an important affirmation of God's transcendence to say that whatever believers want to say about him does transcend the rigors of human logic. I realize this is a sort of tactic that gives believers a bad name among philosophers, so you might want to be careful taking it up, but it's, it's a thought anyway. I can't help observing that something of the pattern I claimed applied last time is also occurring here. This tendency to start thinking about God and his nature not in the context of a relationship between humans who believe in God and God, but making it a question about God's capabilities. What can God know and how can he know it? And given what we've said, does he still qualify to be called God? Is the only way to examine the problem, questions about truth value and future contingent propositions and counterfactuals and subjective conditionals and all the other phrases that tend to come in on this question? What if we explore the question in the context of the divine-human relationship? If you grab someone who believes in God before they've been deformed by studying philosophy, or if you believe in God yourself and are not yet so deformed, or have got over it somehow, ask this person if they believe that God knows what they will do tomorrow even if they haven't yet made up their mind what they will do tomorrow. 
And then if they say yes, ask, how does God know what you're going to do tomorrow? And I think many people would give you the answer by saying, God knows by knowing me so well, knowing me better than I know myself, that he knows what I will do even when I don't know. And he knows what I will freely do and not um, what I must do is somehow necessitated logically. The interesting thing is that while to me I think this is the most common answer that a devout person gives, it's not a route that many philosophers have taken up as a way of handling the question. This sort of interpersonal knowledge being the model for how we understand God rather than truth or falsity of propositions, kind of factual knowledge. A reason perhaps, I don't know, I speculate, is, is this. If I say I know my husband so well that I know what he would do in a hypothetical situation, many philosophers would not call that knowledge because it's not certain. It's probable. What it is is a belief, a very firmly held belief, and maybe a belief with lots of evidence and lots of warrant, but it's not knowledge, it's a belief. So it isn't really possible to know what your spouse or your best friend or your dog would do if he, she, or it were placed in certain circumstances. So the analogy would fail unless you want to talk about God having beliefs, which some philosophers do. They do. They think this is the way to solve the problem. I'm not sure why, because we don't want to think of God having false beliefs, do we? It's not much better than God having false knowledge. But to say that um, human interpersonal knowledge is not a good model for understanding God's knowledge of us, because our knowledge is not certain, our knowledge of one another is not certain, is simply to forget what an, an analogy is. An analogy of this kind entails some kind of difference, especially an analogy, no matter how clumsily drawn, between divine and human experience. It must break down at some point. It seems per perfectly reasonable to argue that the point at which this analogy between divine and human knowledge breaks down is how much certainty or how much per perfection you can have in one's interpersonal knowledge of another or belief in another. So I can feel I can be quite certain about saying if my husband was offered a large sum of money to kill our children, he would refuse. And even though as a philosopher I have to say I know this is not 100% certain, on a witness stand, in a real-life situation, I wouldn't admit any doubt, not even as a sort of quibbling philosopher. But if I have to admit a certain degree of theoretical doubt, because I'm human, it doesn't seem clear to me why um, we can simply say that this is the point at which the analogy does break down, that God's interpersonal knowledge of us is infallible. Given that God is transcendent, one of the chief differences between us is that whereas I possess a high degree of certainty in a certain case, God possesses complete certainty in his super comprehension, to use a wonderful medieval word, a word coined by Molina. Meanwhile, my knowing what my husband would do doesn't make it necessary that he do it. And in the same way, God's knowledge of future possibilities based on this kind of intimate super comprehension rather than the necessity of propositions, is certain but is not coercive. A final 
development of this style of thinking could come again from an inspiration from Aristotle. Might as well. He's the one who created the problem. He might as well help us solve it. God thought that... Sorry. Very strange Freudian slip. Aristotle thought. (laughs) God only believed. (laughs) Aristotle thought that what God knows is himself. In fact, that's all that God knows for Aristotle. Because Aristotle didn't like the idea of God knowing trivial things, like what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow. So Aristotle just thought the divine contemplated itself with its own divine essence. It knows its essence, it knows its ideas, and that's what God knows for Aristotle. Most believers after Aristotle find that unsatisfying, a little bit cold, a little bit limited. But there's ways that you can take it up and transform it, and philosophers in all three faiths did. Even Rashid, Maimonides, and Aquinas, to name people I've named before. And they said that God knows all by knowing his own essence, which reflects the whole of reality. So if we think of ourselves not as some alien object over against God, but if we think of ourselves as taken up in God's being or God's essence or God's experience, then God knows what it is we are knowing and experiencing simply by virtue of being God. And this is one way, for example, to uh, solve the problem of God's timeless knowing of time-bound events. If God knows and, and can, is aware that I am thinking right now I am giving a lecture, thus this is something that God knows, even though that is not his way of experiencing it. Well, this being the last lecture, I found myself looking back and noticing that a consistent theme seems to have emerged from the different things I've said, and also the things that you've contributed in the discussions. And the first is that our notions of humanity and our notions of the divine are very intimately linked. This means that our notions of what is desirable form the basis of our thinking and guessing and dreaming about God. But it also goes a little further, that one of the most fruitful ways of thinking about God is in the context of the relationship that God has to ourselves and to all of nature. And the other thing that, partly under the stimulus of war, that emerged for me looking back at what I've said, is that our picture of the divine, in many surprising ways, has an impact on our understanding of personal responsibility. What we say about how God acts, or what God can do, or what God can know, all have a knock-on effect on what and who we consider ourselves to be and what we can do or what we should do. So I want to finish tonight and this year with a poem by a Sufi, an Islamic mystic. The most intimate of secret thoughts enveloped and fixed along the horizon in folds of light How? The how is known along the outside, while the interior of beyond, to and for the heart of being. Creatures perish in the darkened, blind of quest, knowing intimations. Guessing and dreaming, they pursue the real, faces turned towards the sky, 
whispering secrets to the heavens. While the Lord remains among them, in every turn of time, abiding in their every condition, every instant. They are never without him, not for the blink of an eye, if only they knew, nor he for a moment without them. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.